0: A couple of weeks ago, we were considering the doctrine of our adoption that all those who are justified are received into the family of God. And now God is our Father. We can address Him as such, as Christ taught us, and we are His sons and His heirs. This is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, J.I. Packer said. Well, in applying the doctrine a couple weeks ago, we asked what difference does it make to know that we have God as our Father? And we concluded that it makes all the difference in the world that we know that God is our Father. It promotes a life of praise and thanksgiving. It promotes a life of peace and of prayer and of holiness, of the pursuit of holiness. And we also saw that it promotes a life of patient endurance to the end. And it's with that in mind that I want us to come to our text tonight. And our text tonight is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let me invite you to turn there again. We were looking at it this morning, 1 Peter and chapter 1. And recall what I said there this morning that the apostle Peter's writing to suffering Christians who are scattered throughout these different Roman provinces in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He's gonna send this letter along to them and he wants to encourage them and he wants to especially remind them of their hope in Christ. We're going to focus on verses three to five. So let's read 1 Peter chapter one, verses three to five. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's ask the Lord to help us again. Our Father in heaven, again, we come with complete dependence. We ask that you would help us as we open your word. We thank you for these words. We pray that they would have their intended effect upon us, that your Holy Spirit would come and would give us understanding, and that these words would be pressed into our hearts, that we would be stirred up in our faith, even that sinners would be saved, called to the Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever been really disappointed? Maybe you were really looking forward to something and either that something was a huge letdown so it failed to live up to your expectations, maybe that were building for a long time, or maybe it came to nothing, it didn't happen, that thing that you were looking forward to. Maybe somebody made you a promise and that promise wasn't kept. You were disappointed. Maybe you had life goals. You had aspirations that are now far out of reach. And in your worst moments, your lowest moments, you might even say that your hopes and your dreams have been shattered. Well, we know that disappointment is a painful reality of life in this world. From an early age, we all experience disappointment. Believers as well as unbelievers face many disappointments in this life. Yet it's only the unbeliever who faces ultimate disappointment. This is because his hope rests fully in the stuff of this passing world. But the believer. However disappointed we might be now, those of us who are trusting in Christ, we can never ultimately be disappointed. We can never, in the end, be disappointed. And the reason is that we rest our hope, not fully in the things of this life, but fully upon something absolutely certain. As Peter puts it later in the chapter, verse 13, the believer rests his hope fully upon the grace That is to be brought to him at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is when Christ returns. There's going to be this grace brought to us. We rest our hope fully upon that. The Christian has a hope that cannot be shattered. It's a hope that does not disappoint. And it's this hope that I want us to focus on this evening. The key word in our text is hope, which you have there In verse 3, our living hope. But we also see it in verse 13 and then on down in verse 21 of chapter 1. Now, hope, that word hope, as you know, is thrown around a lot. People say things like, I hope I don't fail my test, I hope I don't get sick, I hope it doesn't rain. I hope I don't lose my job, I hope I get into that college, I hope I get a call back, maybe you you sent some applications for a job, these kinds of things. It's not the sort of hope, though, that I want to talk about, this wishful thinking. I want to talk about a hope that is real and certain, a living hope, as Peter puts it. And it's this hope, brothers and sisters, that belongs to us as the children of God. And there's two things about this hope that I want us to consider, And the first is this, our hope, our hope in Christ is not dead. Our hope in Christ is not dead. We ourselves were once dead, spiritually speaking, the worst kind of death. Dead in trespasses and sins, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. And not only were we dead, but we were doomed, we were on our way to eternal destruction because God's righteous wrath was upon us because of our disobedience, because of our sin. So Paul goes on to say there in Ephesians 2 that we were all numbered among the sons of disobedience, not the sons of God, the sons of disobedience. And then he says, we were all conducting ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, And were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And left to ourselves, we were utterly helpless and we were utterly hopeless. But, says Paul, but God intervened. God did something wonderful in us and for us. In this deadness of ours, he reached down and he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He spiritually resurrected us, uniting us to Christ and raising us up with Christ. Even when we were dead in trespasses, writes Paul, he made us alive together with Christ. And God did this not because of our merit. He did this not because of our loveliness. We had no merit and we had no loveliness. In fact, because of our disobedience, We not only had no merit, but we had demerit. We had demerit and not only a lack of loveliness, but we had a repugnant moral ugliness about us because of our sin. So the reason for God making us alive rests entirely in God himself. He did it because of his rich mercy, says Paul, and because of his great love with which he loved us. So not our merit, but God's mercy, and not our loveliness, but God's love. Now, Peter is declaring the same awesome truth in different terms. Here in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1, he blesses God for begetting us again. In other words, causing us to be born again. He blesses God. Blessed be God for doing this, he says. And he says that God did this in accordance with his abundant mercy. So we should pause and tell ourselves this. We need to remember, never forget that we, as the children of God, are objects of God's rich and abundant mercy. He looked upon us in our wretched and horrible condition in which we were born, in our sin, in our trespasses, in our disobedience. He looked down upon us, and even as his wrath was upon us, he had mercy on us. He saw us in our great need, and he stooped down to raise us up. That's what it means, to have mercy. He had mercy upon us. And for this, we ought to bless God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. The language Peter uses here is familiar to us. It should be. It's the language of regeneration, the language of new birth. And you can recall John chapter 3, Jesus talking with Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's the same thing that Peter is talking about here. He uses the same language a little bit later in the chapter. So look down at verse 23 in 1 Peter 1. The exact same language, although it's translated differently here. He says, having been born again, having been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. He's speaking of that powerful work of God's spirit in us to make us alive. And it's that powerful work that issues, not just in new life, but Peter is emphasizing that this powerful work of God in beginning us again issues also in new hope. So in new life and in new hope. So God has begotten us again to a living hope or unto a living hope. We were once dead, but now alive. Once apart from Christ, we had no hope, but now in Christ, we have hope, true hope. Whatever hope we once had was false and dead hope, but now it's a living hope that we have. I like how one man describes this living hope of ours. He says this it is the opposite of an empty, false, deceptive hope. This hope is not lively or living because it is bright, strong, active in us, but because God guarantees and produces its fulfillment. All men have some sort of hope, but while so many deceive themselves with the dead hopes of their own making, we, whom God himself begot, have a living hope that rests on God's promises and power. When the hopes of others goes to pieces in the last flood, our hope will sail triumphantly into the harbor of eternal fulfillment." So this is the first thing I want us to consider about our hope as believers. Our hope is not dead, but it's living, a living hope. But there's another point that is absolutely fundamental to this. Why is it that our hope is not dead? Why is it that our hope is living? It's because our Savior is not dead, but living, because Christ has been risen. You see how he links these two things together. We have a living hope because we have a living savior. Our hope is as real and alive as the one who now sits at the right hand of God. So look again at the text. Peter's reminding these believers that God, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten them again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead begotten to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. Now, whatever else Peter means by this, this much is clear. Our hope as believers is entirely bound up with the fact of the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus of Nazareth never rose again, then our hope is as dead and empty as any. So in a word, our hope depends on a living Savior who conquered the grave. There's simply no gospel, no good news, no hope for sinners if Christ is not written. And Paul, as you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, he very clearly and powerfully makes this argument because there were people saying that there's no resurrection in general. And he wants them to see where that leads them. And he says there, if there's no resurrection, At all, then not even Christ is raised from the dead. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, well, then we have no hope. We're still dead in our trespasses and sins. We've not been made alive together with Christ because he's still in the grave and our preaching and our faith, it's all empty, it's all in vain. And he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So you see how... The fact of the resurrection and our hope are bound together. You can't separate them. So our hope is not dead because our savior is not dead. As we sang, death no longer is the stronger. Hell itself is captive led. Christ has risen from death's prison. Or the tomb he light has shed. That's the solid foundation of our hope. That's the first thing. Our hope is not dead. But secondly... Our hope in Christ is not endangered. Our hope in Christ is not endangered. I think most of us would associate that word endangered with endangered species. Certain species of animals and even plants that have been classified as endangered, so they are in danger of becoming extinct in danger of ceasing to exist so that you could never see this animal again or this plant, whatever it might be. Their future, to say the least, is very uncertain, endangered. Now, such is not the case with our hope as Christians. Our hope's not in danger of being wiped out. Our future existence with God in glory is absolutely certain. Our hope is a certain expectation of eternal life and joy and peace and so on. A certain expectation. We could put it another way. Our hope is not fragile, but it's firm. And it's an unshakable, unbreakable hope. Whatever we might hope for in this life very well might come to nothing. We know that. Our earthly hopes, we call them, our desires, our aspirations, these are easily broken. But our hope as Christians, our living hope, is unbreakable. That's what Peter is trying to communicate. Life is full of uncertainties. The best of plans are at best tentative. We have to write them in pencil because we cannot possibly plan for all of the uncertainties of life. Only God knows what a day will bring forth. But amidst all of the uncertainties of life, we need to remember that our hope is absolutely certain. There are certain things, and this is one of them, and it's an anchor for us. So our hope rests upon a firm foundation. As we saw, it rests upon the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, but it also rests upon the power of God, the love of God, the faithfulness of God. If you were here this morning, and even just now as I was saying it, you may recall the background to this letter. Peter has a burden as he's writing. He knows that there's believers who are suffering and they need help to persevere, to press on in the midst of these pressures and all of the trials that they're facing. And his main approach is to remind them that they have hope in Christ beyond this life, to remind them that they're pilgrims in this word. He calls them pilgrims, sojourners, temporary residents, That as God's children, their true home is in heaven. That's what he wants to remind them of. Don't forget your true home is in heaven. So what was the message that these suffering Christians needed to hear? They needed to hear that God had begotten them again to a living hope. They needed to hear that they had been born again to a sure and a heavenly inheritance, and they needed to hear that as God's children, by his power, they were being kept for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what an encouragement that would have been as this letter by Sylvanus would have been brought to all these churches. A word in season to all of them as it's read, and maybe he expounded on it, I don't know. But as they're hearing these words and being reminded of things that they knew, yes, and their eyes are lifted up and they're reminded of their hope. But what an encouragement it is to us today, because this was also written for us, and especially when we find ourselves grieved by various trials. That's how Peter puts it here in this chapter, grieved by various trials. And all of us are facing some sort of trials, but this is especially an encouragement to those of us who are suffering. If we would take these things to heart, it would make all the difference in our lives. We could press on with joy and confidence no matter what. Now, I want to spend a few moments taking a closer look at these things. Our hope as believers is the expectation of what is certain yet future. So Peter emphatically makes this point in verses four and five. And he does this by by painting two beautiful pictures of our living hope. Two pictures here. Here's the first picture. He speaks of our hope in terms of a heavenly inheritance. He speaks of our hope in terms of a heavenly inheritance. There are two things that Peter says we are begotten, again unto. Look at the text. He says that God has begotten us again to a living hope and then to an inheritance. Unto a living hope, unto an inheritance. Those are the two things he says God has begotten us again unto these things. Now the doctrine of our adoption lies just beneath the surface of the text here. Because as soon as we think about our inheritance, we ought to think of our adoption. Those two ideas go together. I tried to show that last time. God adopts us as his sons and heirs, male or female. You are a son in the sense of being an heir. So remember Galatians 4, 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ you have an inheritance. But even before Peter mentions our inheritance, we are reminded in our text of our adoption. Because we're not sons of God by natural birth, but by a supernatural birth. Remember, we're sons of disobedience, sons of wrath by our natural birth. We must be begotten again to enter the family of God. We need to be born again of the spirit of God in order to be his children, his sons and daughters. And we're reminded of that here. That's what Peter says that Note the father has done to us, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. So you see how the doctrine of our adoption is here in the text? Here's the logic. God the Father has begotten us again, making us his sons. And being his sons, we are heirs of God through Christ. And therefore, as Peter says, God has begotten us again to an inheritance. So you follow that logic? Now, this inheritance, it's unlike any other inheritance just imagine a little bit here. If you inherit a house, it might be destroyed by fire. It might be ripped to pieces by wind, a tornado. It might be flooded. If you inherit your grandmother's jewelry, you might lose it or it might get stolen. If you inherit some money, it might be heavily taxed. It might be wasted. You might invest it and that investment might not work out might be devalued by inflation or otherwise sprout wings and fly away that's the language of proverbs 23:5 riches sprout wings and they fly away so however great an earthly inheritance may be it is anything but secure treasures on earth are always insecure and endangered That's why Jesus taught us not to spend our lives laying up treasures on earth. And he said, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, Matthew 6, 19. Don't lay up treasure on earth. He says, lay up treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven, or we could say our heavenly inheritance, it's entirely different. And notice that Peter describes it using three adjectives. It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. It's incorruptible. That means it's not subject to corruption, decay, or destruction. God is incorruptible, Romans 1.23. God is immortal, 1 Timothy 1.17. It's the same word. At the last day, we shall be raised incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15.52, that's our word. The prize that we shall receive is an imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians 9.25. So our inheritance is incorruptible. But also the believer's inheritance is undefiled. This means it's without stain. It's pure. The word is used three other times in the New Testament and most notably of Christ. And Hebrews 7.26, where we read, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. So our inheritance is undefiled. And lastly, Peter says it does not fade away. It's actually just one word, and this is the only place you find it in the New Testament. It's unfading. It's a word that means never withering. It's like a flower always in bloom, never losing its beauty. If you look at the end of 1 Peter 1, the all flesh is grass, all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's the opposite of that. It's grass that doesn't wither, flowers that don't fall away. That's the picture. It's, it's unfading. It will never lose its pristine quality. It's perfect luster. It's brilliant shine. Even the best things in this life will fade and ultimately disappoint you. Many people spend their whole lives chasing after what they consider to be the good life. They seek their happiness. They seek their fulfillment in the things of this world. And they have to keep going from one thing to the next because as soon as they get something that they think is going to satisfy them, it loses its luster. It grows stale. So they move on to the next thing. They find again and again they're not satisfied. Suppose you could have it all in this life. Whatever that is for you. Most people, they'd say riches, ease, pleasure, so on. You could fill your life with all of the most enjoyable things in this life. Good things. Good things even that God has given us to enjoy and be thankful for. But what you would find, if this could be your lot in life, that you could have it all, you would find over time that all of those things and your enjoyment of those things would fade. Now, you children here, imagine that you could have as much ice cream as you want. I realize some of you adults are thinking that sounds nice. (laughs) I think it's safe to say that ice cream is one of the best treats, the most delightful treats in this world. It's just designed for pure pleasure. But you know, even your favorite ice cream would grow old, and it would lose its appeal. You would get tired of it. And not so with our inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It won't lose its luster ever. So Peter first uses these three beautiful adjectives, but then he says more. He says that this wonderful inheritance is also reserved in heaven for you. Reserved in heaven for you. It's guarded. It's protected. It's preserved in heaven for the believer. So do you see what Peter, inspired by the Spirit, is trying to do here? He's trying to describe something really that's indescribable. He wants to impress upon his hearers the greatness and the glory of their hope, of their inheritance. As children of God, they and we have an inheritance that is absolutely secure, in no way endangered. Think about this. There are at least three ways in which an earthly inheritance is not secure. At least three ways. The inheritance itself might be corrupted, defiled, or fade away. Again, if it's a house or money, whatever it is, the inheritance might come to nothing. Or it might unlawfully be taken away from the rightful heir so that they never come into possession of it. Or the heir might die before he or she is able to receive the inheritance. Those are at least three ways in which an earthly inheritance is not secure. By contrast, what does Peter say about the security of our inheritance as believers? He says that the inheritance itself will in no way be corrupted, defiled, or diminished. And then he goes on to say that it will be safeguarded, reserved for the rightful heirs, the sons of God. Then he says that the heirs themselves will be preserved in order to receive it. Look at verse 5. He doesn't just say that this wonderful inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. He goes on to say, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time this leads us to the second picture that Peter paints of our living hope. He speaks of our hope not only in terms of our eternal heavenly inheritance, but also in terms of our final salvation. Our final salvation. Salvation, he says, ready to be revealed at the last time. We'll consider this point much more briefly. Peter's speaking of salvation in the full and final sense. We sometimes refer to three tenses of salvation past, present, and future. So the Bible says, by grace you have been saved through faith. You have been saved. That's past tense. By grace, God is still completing his work in us. It's present tense. There's this work of sanctification, he's preserving us. Present tense. And one day that work will be finished. It will be perfected. That's the future tense of our salvation. And all three of these tenses are brought together in a text like Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, He who has begun a good work in you, past tense, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the final day. He will be completing it. There's a present Tends to the salvation there until the final day of Christ when it's completed. So the bookends here are the day of your conversion in the day of Christ. Or in terms of our text, it's the time when God begot you again. And then this last time that Peter speaks of when this salvation will be fully ours. So Peter would have these suffering Christians Look forward to the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, his return. In the last time, Christ will return, and it's language that he uses a little later, Christ will return and he will be revealed openly for all to see when he comes again. What's going to happen then? The dead will be raised and there will be judgment. The son will judge the world in righteousness. It will be a dreadful day for the wicked, for unbelievers, but a glorious day for us, the sons of God. For us, it will be the revelation, the arrival of our final salvation. Like our risen Savior who is called the first fruits of those who have died, we shall also be raised by God incorruptible in glory and in power. That means that our perfected souls will then again be joined to our bodies, new bodies, resurrected bodies. When you die, soul and body are separated. And they await, that reunion awaits the resurrection, this final day, but on that day our perfected souls will be reunited with our bodies resurrected bodies paul speaks of this as our adoption in the fullest sense in romans 8:23 he says now we are eagerly waiting for the adoption he say i thought we we're already adopted we are already adopted He's talking about our final, full adoption. We eagerly are waiting for the adoption, and he explains it this way, the redemption of our bodies. So only in the last time will we, the sons of God, fully enter into the privileges of our adoption. This is the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time that Peter is writing of here. When Christ returns, our salvation by grace will be completed. Then we will be fully redeemed, body and soul, forever. This is our great and our living hope. Look at verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ on the last day when our salvation is completed so our hope our hope we've seen here as the children of God is not dead but it's living and this is true because our Savior is not dead but he's living he is risen he's reigning he's one day returning and so our hope is not in the least endangered it's firm it's unbreakable it's a certain hope that we have as God's children As sons and heirs of God, we have a heavenly, eternal inheritance. What is that inheritance? Well, it's nothing less than all the glories of heaven. Chief among them, our glorious Savior. And we look forward to a full and a final salvation. That's that's the scope here of what Peter is covering. And he's trying to encourage these believers. What can we possibly say to such wonderful things. What can we say? Well, I ask you first, do you have this hope in you? Do you have this hope that Peter, by the Holy Spirit, is writing about that you can have? If you're outside of Christ, if you're not a believer, you don't have this hope. And I could spare you the trouble of going all over the world all through your life of looking for other things to rest your hope upon. They're going to disappoint you. This is the only true hope, this living hope, and you can have it by faith in Jesus Christ, that you come to him, forsaking your sins and coming to the Savior in faith, resting yourself completely on him and saying Christ and Christ alone is my hope, my Savior. And then you too will be a son of God, a child of God, and have this wonderful inheritance reserved in heaven for you. Now, if you do have this hope, and I know that many of us do, we have this hope, well, what difference does it make in your life? Do you think about it? Or do you go on with your life and you rarely think about these things? Read 1 Peter and see the difference that these things should make, the applications. We need to constantly remind ourselves and we need to remind one another of these truths as the day approaches. So we come, we admonish each other, we encourage each other, we remind each other, brother, sister, remember, remember. The Lord is coming. Remember our hope. Remember. Remember. So we need to think of these things. And certainly these things are to stir us to praise. So Peter is saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to bring us into this that we might also praise God, remembering these truths. But of course, these things should encourage us. And they're especially precious as we've seen in times of adversity and suffering. Remember the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. He says, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, and Paul had a lot of afflictions, our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So that's what God wants us to do here. To again, lift our eyes and look at those things which are eternal, the things that are not seen. But also these truths should motivate us to live lives of holiness. Let me simply quote John from 1 John 3, 2 and 3. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed... So he's speaking now again of final salvation. When he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So it should should motivate us to purify ourselves. To pursue lives of holiness. Well brethren may God help us to live in light of our hope, in light of our inheritance and our final salvation. Let me close with these words of Romans fifteen thirteen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for these moments to spend in your word. We thank you that you have lifted our eyes off of the things of this world, the temporary things. And you have lifted our eyes to eternal things, to see our hope in Christ. And we pray that we would see more and more clearly. Help us to live in light of the hope that is ours, to remember that this is not our home. I pray especially to those who might be suffering to those who might be discouraged, that they would be encouraged by these things, that you would comfort their hearts, that they would be encouraged to persevere. Lord, we ask for your help. Write these truths upon our hearts and pray that you would bring some here into your family tonight, hearing these things, that they would long for this hope that is only found in Christ and that they would go to him in simple trust. We ask in his name, amen. Amen.